I'm excited to enter this Christmas season in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke in the first two or three chapters of Luke from the rest of the year as we talk about Christmas and the entrance of Christ. This morning we'll be talking about God's overcoming power. God's overcoming power in Luke chapter 1, the first few verses there. It's important as we jump into the Gospel of Luke that we have a clear picture on the setting. Because as we swoop in here, we are seeing the people of God facing tremendous obstacles. The people do have their temple, uh, newly outfitted, very elaborate temple that Herod had helped build for them. They had their land, they had priesthood, they had sacrifices going. But they are still, in Luke 1, under the authority of a cruel, oppressive power. Like Persia before her, Rome exercises total dominion and authority over the people of God. Additionally, it's been hundreds of years since a prophetic word has been spoken. As the Old Testament closed and the New Testament begins, there have been years, decade after decade after decade of silence about God's promises and his plans. And as the people of God are found in Luke 1, one of the burning questions they had to be asking is, can God really overcome all the obstacles that we see to accomplish his plans and purposes in this world? Can God really bring us this Messiah that the Old Testament promised who will bring peace and a lasting freedom? This is important because in a very similar way, we are waiting on promises of God in 2019 as Americans. We too have been promised things we've not yet received. We're waiting on Christ to return and to judge the living and the dead and to make all everything wrong right again. But just like these people in Luke 1, it can be easy for us to lose hope as well. It can be easy for us as we watch the news, as we watch the dysfunction and brokenness in this world to wonder, can God really fix all that we see around us? Can he really finish what he started? Here's the big idea I wanna show you from Luke chapter one that I believe holds these verses all together in kind of one statement. God overcomes all obstacles. What I wanna show you from God's word today is that we have a God who has an overcoming power to overcome every single obstacle that is put in his way. What I want you to see from God's word today is that as we see God overcome obstacles in the birth and the entrance of Christ, it's meant to give us confidence to trust his promise about the return of Christ. One of the ways we wait well on the promises of God is by continually reminding ourselves that we have a God who overcomes every single obstacle. First thing I wanna show you God overcomes in this passage is that he overcomes shame. First thing we see God overcoming in Luke 1, verses 5 through 38 is shame. The camera in Luke 1 zooms in during a time of Roman occupation to focus on an interesting couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. I say interesting because on the one hand, Zachariah and Elizabeth were very prominent people. Zachariah was a priest and he had married a woman in Elizabeth who came from a very prominent priestly family. 
it's safe to say that both of them came from families who had such a respectable name in the community that aspirations were high about what they would accomplish in life. I'm sure, for example, that when Zachariah and Elizabeth, people had high hopes that they would play a prominent role in Jewish society as they led in the worship of God. But somewhere along the way, all of these expectations about their prominence and their impact vanished. You see, because despite their incredible pedigree, despite their family name and the history and the heritage that they had, Zachariah and Elizabeth were old people who had no children. I know there are some of you today in this very room who may have struggled with infertility and the difficulty of having children. And while I cannot imagine how difficult that has been for you, I do want to assure you of this. As great as your struggle may have been with that today in your life, know that it pales in comparison to the social embarrassment and stigma that was attached to infertility in this New Testament culture. You see, to be childless in this New Testament era was to be sinful. To be without children was to be without the blessing of God. If you didn't have kids, as Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't have, it was assumed that you were not right with God. And while the narrator makes it clear as he describes them that they were righteous and blameless, the fact that they never had children created this tension in their lives. So it's important for us to notice that as we zoom in in Luke 1 to this family, readers of Luke's gospel would have been puzzled that these people were the first ones Luke introduces us to. This tired old couple that had faced embarrassment and shame in their lives seemed hardly like the stuff of heroes or legend that they assumed Luke would share with them. But the story picks up speed as Luke moves from describing who they are to describing a particular experience Zechariah had when he was in Jerusalem. Look at Luke 1, verse 8, to see how this is described. It says, when his division was on duty, this is Zechariah, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people." Zechariah, as he enters the temple to offer sacrifice, to lead in worship, is immediately greeted by an angel. And as is characteristic in this time, when an angel shows up, people's first response is not often joy or adulation or excitement. They're often very afraid of what they've seen. After the angel assures Zechariah that he need not be afraid, 
there's a curious phrase that I want you to notice again in your Bibles that we shouldn't miss. Look back in verse 13. The angel said, do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard. Now, there are going to be some pretty tremendous things Zechariah is told here. But I do want you to notice that while the culture has abandoned Zechariah and Elizabeth, God has not. To their culture, these two people were outcasts. They were shamed. They were embarrassed. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were the people people whispered about as they walked through the streets of Jerusalem. And yet, while these people face incredible shame and embarrassment, right now, they have the creator of the universe, his full attention as he's listening to their prayer. God isn't looking at them through the lens of shame or embarrassment. He's looking at two people that are precious and special and dear to him. It is a warning to us to be careful that we do not adopt cultural ways of viewing people instead of God's way of looking at people. Every single person you encounter in your life, every moment of every day, every person you meet is someone God loves. This is a warning to us that we don't adopt cultural practices of evaluating people, but rather biblical. God's response is indeed that he's heard Zachariah's prayer. He's going to give him a son. He says some pretty fantastic things about this son. He's not just going to be any son. He's going to be great. There's going to be a a power and a, a kind of a special role that he's going to fulfill. He's going to be set apart from an early age, he won't drink wine. He won't, he won't be uh, distracted from what God's called him to do. He's even said, it's even said about John, uh, Zachariah's son that he's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. This is important because we're living in a day and age in which the Holy Spirit would come on someone and leave them once they accomplish this task. But John's gonna be different. <coughs> we're also told that he's gonna preach a message of repentance. He's gonna carry on the ministry of Elijah. Elijah indeed was a powerful prophet. He was a prophet who through his ministry called the people to prepare themselves for a mighty move of God. But the mighty move of God that John is going to prepare the people for is not just a a move of God in a general way. They're being prepared for the entrance of the Messiah himself. Jesus is coming. In short, what this passage tells us is that Zechariah's son, John, will be a prophet without compare. This is an incredible testimony because what we're told is that Zechariah is going to have the person we know today as John the Baptist, (coughs) the one who went ahead of Jesus, preaching in the wilderness, declaring that the Lord was coming. The principle that you and I need to kind of discern and distill from this then is this. The shame and embarrassment that this couple has faced their entire lives Is that an obstacle to God? Shame and embarrassment that their culture had assigned to them did not knock them out of being used by God in an incredibly powerful way. In fact, God historically has made a habit of using people like this. Sarah and Abraham, Rebecca and Isaac, Rachel and Jacob, the first three great patriarchs of the Old Testament, 
all had wives who struggled with infertility. Mighty men like Samson and Samuel also came from women who for years struggled with infertility. (coughs) Why does God do this? Paul answers this when he says in 1 Corinthians 1, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has used the shame and the hurt and the frustration to shape and to mold Zachariah and Elizabeth and the people he wants them to be so that now they are ready to be used by God. So often we view our mistakes, our failures through an incredibly negative lens, but we have to remember that we have a God who turns obstacles in our lives into opportunities for his glory. Some of the very adversity you faced in your life some of the most difficult moments in your life actually are some of the things God wants to use most powerfully in you to shape and mold you into who he wants you to be. I've told you guys before that I really like history and over the last week as we've had some time off, I've watched a documentary about World War II and uh, enjoyed watching that. And, and the last couple of days I've been watching a lot about Pearl Harbor and the attack that happened. And one of the interesting things that historians will do after a long stretch of history has passed by as they'll go back and kind of look at the tape, as it were, and try to understand why countries did what they did. And what's interesting is Japan, when they attacked Pearl Harbor, according to the historical record, they were convinced that if they dealt a decisive blow to the United States that so demoralized them, that they would so knock them out of the game, would so kind of hurt their spirit that America would retreat and would not want to fight. They had a kind of view of America that saw them as kind of playboys and people that liked to uh, relax and were consumers. And, and they thought, if we, if we attack these guys and, and really knock out their Pacific fleet, they're not going to have the will to fight a long and grueling war. That as history has shown, they were very, very wrong about that. They were wrong. Because part of what historians have pointed out about that generation, often called the greatest generation is that part of what shaped and molded them was the Great Depression. I had a grandfather who fought in World War II who went through the Great Depression, saw his family lose almost everything. And while the Great Depression was an incredibly difficult season in our country's history, most historians draw a direct line from the adversity of the Great Depression and the character that was forged in those years of loss and scarcity into the character that sustained our soldiers as they fought in one of the greatest military conflicts the world had ever seen. Adversity at the time looked to be crippling. It looked like it was just all negative and bad and horrible, but it actually turned out to be something that was used in an incredibly powerful way. I wonder if there's some of us in our life that need to replay and reframe how we've looked at adversity. I wonder if there's some of us today that maybe need to let some things in our past go. Maybe there's some things in your past that you're ashamed of or embarrassed about. Maybe you've let those things shape how you think even God looks at you. But can I tell you the good news today? We have a God that does not look at us through the lens of our failure. Instead, we have a God who looks at us through the eyes of a loving father. 
If you've come to a place in your life where you think mistakes or failures or embarrassments you've had in your life have knocked you out of service, have you knocked you out of being effectively used by God for his kingdom, look at this first scene of this story as you see God overcoming the shame and embarrassment in this couple to use them in an incredibly powerful way. But number two, we also see in this passage not just God overcoming shame, we also see him overcoming doubt. We see him overcome doubt. Now, it's safe to say that Zechariah has some whiplash at this point, right? Because he walked into this temple, he entered this day just like any other, assuming that his life was kind of fixed, that his childlessness was something he could do nothing about. And now he's not just told that he's going to have a family. He's also told that he's going to have a son who's going to be a prophet, who's not just going to be any prophet. He's actually going to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's like going from zero to 90, right? He's got some whiplash here. And so his response in some ways is logical. Look at what he says in verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, <coughs> for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah's response, a better translation would be, yeah, right. Have you seen how old my wife is? Have you seen how old I am? Gabriel, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but you know, We're not looking for a house by the school. (laughs) We're old. This is over. It was the same thing Abram said when God came to him. And Genesis saying, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a baby. And Abram's like, have you looked at us? Have you seen where we are? This is a logical response. Zechariah has indeed probably at this point accepted his lot in life as childless. And obviously he's been praying because the angel says, I heard you, we heard your prayer. But apparently at some point along the way, this had become just a rote prayer. It had become just something Zachariah was praying because he knew he was supposed to, but he had really no expectation of it coming to pass. Can I give you a word there? If you're praying about something you think is impossible, that you think is never going to happen, that you've prayed for maybe for decades, don't stop praying. You serve a God who can overcome all obstacles. God hears Zechariah's prayer, and though it had become rote, he continued to pray it. We also see that apparently from his response, he was looking at this through the lens, what he could see with his eyes. There were probably a thousand things that popped into Zechariah's head as he heard this prophecy as to why it would not work. But implicit in his doubt... Implicit in his questioning of God in this is a request for a sign. It's almost like he's saying this, you know, I don't really see how this could happen, Gabriel, but but if you could like give me a little evidence, give give me just a little something that would show me that this is actually going to happen, I might believe you. Famous last words, right? Be careful what you ask for when you ask for a sign because that's exactly what God gives him. Look at verse 19. See how the angel responds. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. 
Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah asks for a sign. God says, here you go. For the next nine months, you're not going to be able to talk. Now, before we rush to accuse the Almighty of harshness, do you understand that God is rebuking him for his lack of faith? He's rebuking him for doubting God's promise. Also notice that Gabriel's first response is not to talk about how great Zechariah is or try to convince him of his ability to do this. Gabriel first tries to get Zechariah's eyes off of himself and onto God. Did you see that? I am Gabriel. I came from the very presence of God. You need to trust me, believe what I'm saying. But this inability to speak is actually in many ways a kindness God is giving Zechariah. Think about it this way. For nine months, every time Zechariah tried to speak, every time someone walked up and tried to have a conversation with him, not knowing he was unable to speak, every time he overheard conversations around him he could not join, every single one of those moments was a reminder that God was going to give him a son. Because if God can close my mouth, if the God who's saying this word to me can miraculously make, make me unable to speak, that God cannot just close my mouth. He can open my wife's womb. Amen. So often we are quick to see the discipline of God as purely punitive. It's purely just out to hurt us or harm us. But please hear, sweet people, see the kindness of God in his discipline of Zechariah. He's not just out to punish Zechariah for doubting him. He's out to teach Zechariah the truth. So Zechariah comes out of the temple and sure enough, he is unable to speak. The very moment he walks out the doors, the people are there, they're watching him, they're seeing him wave his arms wildly. But don't miss this. The very moment Zechariah stepped out of that temple and was unable to speak, while it was a very disconcerting moment, it was also a moment in time that he knew God was going to keep his promise. Because the same God that closed his mouth was going to bless his wife. And look at what the Bible says in verse 24 as this scene concludes. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth, after years of shame and embarrassment, is blessed. Now here's the principle we need to see. Human failure does not stop the plan and purpose of God. Human failure, human doubt, human weakness doesn't stop God from accomplishing his plan and purpose. Actually, God's plan and purposes continues in spite of Zechariah's lack of faith. This is important because many times I hear people very erroneously say in the church that the only thing that limits God is our faith. 
People will wrongly say God wants to do things, but humans are just not getting with the program. If we had faith and we just believed enough, God would perform miracles. Now, let me be clear with you about why that's wrong. It's true that God does use human agency. We are the tools that God uses to accomplish his plans and purposes. It's also true that God does call us to a life of faith and following of him. But please don't miss this. God doesn't allow humans and their failings and their weakness to stop his plan. Just because we fail or we have a lack of faith doesn't mean God's plans and purposes are going to be stopped. God will often move in and through and around us even when we are broken. See, the Bible is not a book about a bunch of incredibly well put together people who God helped do amazing things. The Bible is a story of a bunch of broken people used by an incredibly glorious God for his purposes. Think about a guy like Jonah. You know the story of Jonah? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, his arch enemies, and to preach the good news, to tell them to repent that God would be gracious to them. What does Jonah do? Jonah sells everything he has and sails in the opposite direction. God hurls a storm onto Jonah and the men that are with him. And instead of saying, turn around, I want to go to Nineveh, what does Jonah do? I would rather die. Throw me overboard. Let me die instead of going to Nineveh. God appoints a great fish to come and swallow Jonah, giving him some time to think about what he'd done. Jonah repents only to go to Nineveh, preach, see the people repent, and then he whines. He complains about the favor and the grace of God. The book of Jonah doesn't end with Jonah riding off on some white horse with the people of Nineveh and Assyria around him, seeing them repent and experience God's favor. The book of Jonah ends with Jonah whining and complaining outside the city about how good God is. Please understand, you're not meant to walk away from the book of Jonah going, man, that Jonah's quite a guy. You're meant to walk away from the book of Jonah going, wow, God is gracious. If God can accomplish all this through a whining, complaining, disobedient person, what kind of God do we serve? That's what you're meant to walk away from, understanding about the book of Jonah. In the same way, what we recognize is that while, yes, we are called to faithfulness, yes, God's sovereign plan being accomplished in this world doesn't excuse us from obedience. This doesn't mean I get to throw my hands in the air and act like it doesn't matter. But there is a confidence and a trust and I hope that I can have in knowing that Jesus indeed is going to make everything right even as pastors have moral failures in this world. Jesus is going to come back and make every wrong right even as oppressive governments bring incredible persecution on the church. I don't have to wonder if God's going to accomplish its plans and purposes because the church at times is sick and anemic and distracted and divided. I can know that no matter what I see with my eyes, that Jesus is going to come back and right every single wrong. 
This is what Paul said about us and our salvation in Philippians 1.6. When he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. This is not a license to sin. This is not a license to live your life however you want. But this is a sobering reminder that even in my weakness, in my failings, God is going to win. How do we remember that? Look at what happened to Zechariah. Zechariah is told to get his eyes off of himself and get his eyes fixed on God and who he is. Zechariah is given a moment-by-moment reminder of God's power and mercy and grace. We have a God who overcomes all obstacles. He not only overcomes doubt, not only overcomes shame. In this passage, we also see him overcoming doubt and human failure. But finally, thirdly and finally, we also see that he overcomes sin. God overcomes sin. The camera zooms out from Jerusalem and this obscure couple to an obscure place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's a remote backwater place, so much so that when one of Jesus' earliest disciples is told that the Messiah is coming from Nazareth, he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (coughs) This Nazareth in this town, we're introduced to a young girl named Mary who's engaged She's going to marry a man who's of the house of David. And Gabriel now, for the second time, in a span of just a few verses, is coming with a message about a child. First message was about John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. The second message is to Mary. Look at what he says in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Incredible promise and prophecy that Mary is given that first she as a virgin will conceive. She's going to give birth to a son, and God is going to name him Jesus. The fact that God is naming this child means that he's set apart for a special purpose. He's said to be great. There's going to be a magnificence and a power about him. And different than John, as incredible as John as a prophet is here, Jesus is described as the son of the most high. That is to say that he's going to be made of the same stuff as God is made of. He's going to be divine But as this divine great one named Jesus, he will also reign over the house of David forever. What Mary is being told is that her son is the long-awaited king. He's the one that the nation of Israel and Judah have been looking for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He's coming and Mary is going to bring him into this world as his mother. But one of the words that we should focus on in this passage that shows up in two places at the end of verse 33 are the words forever and the idea that his kingdom will have no end. This Messiah is going to come and bring a victory in such a way that his victory, his kingdom will never end. 
Now that's compelling because it's difficult for us to think about someone having a victory that never ends because usually victories in this life are short-lived. From Super Bowls to presidential elections, there's always another one coming up. I've told you guys before about how much I dislike the New England Patriots. Uh, well, the Patriots are off to a rip-roaring start. They're 10-1 and one this year. And as much as it pains me to say it, they are an incredibly dominant football team. A cheating dominant football team, but a, a football team nonetheless. Uh, this season, again, they're racking up victory after victory. It looks like they'll probably go back to the Super Bowl. They'll probably even win another Super Bowl. Who knows? But here's what we do know. There will be a point when this dynasty of the New England Patriots comes to an end. They're not going to wheel Tom Brady out in a wheelchair in his 80s to throw the football as quarterback. Eventually, it's all going to come to an end. They're going to have to retool. They're going to have to rebuild. It's important for us to note things like this because this is distinguished from Jesus whose kingdom will never end. In other words, Jesus is going to accomplish a victory in such a way that his enemies will never rise again to defeat him. His kingdom will reign forever. Mary, taking all this in, in a similar way to Zechariah, probably has some whiplash. Okay, I'm a virgin, never been with a man, but you're telling me I'm not just going to have a baby, but my baby is going to be the Messiah my people have been looking for for thousands of years. Look at what she asks in verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Now, it's important that in the original language I bring out that this question should be distinguished from Zachariah's question. Because while Zachariah's question was predicated on doubt and assuming it couldn't work, Mary's question is actually predicated on trust. This is an example of the classical phrase, (coughs) faith, seeking, understanding. Mary is exhibiting a belief in God, but it's a belief in God that's also seeking to understand better how God is going to accomplish his plans. (coughs) It's important because what we have to recognize about faith is that faith is not, it is not just a blind leap in the dark. The call to believe in Jesus is not for you to put a blindfold on and jump off a cliff. Faith is an invitation to trust God, but from the position of trust to seek understanding about who God is. Faith is therefore not anti-intellectual. Faith is the key that actually opens up real understanding. We know that she's asking this question in the right spirit because the angel doesn't rebuke her as he rebukes Zachariah. Look at what he says in verse 35. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and in the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. This is a very clear declaration of the promise of the incarnation. 
It's the promise that God is going to bring about the birth of Jesus in such a way that he will have two natures. He'll be one person, but fully God and fully human. He will be human just as we are human, with one exception. He will be, as the Bible says here, holy. What God is doing as he declares this is he's saying he's going to overshadow, he's going to work around the normal processes through which a baby enters this world to bring about his son. I told you guys before that I'm a child of the 90s, which means I grew up on video games. I grew up on Mario, Sonic. I grew up uh, playing all the different iterations of the Nintendo systems, even all the way to the first uh, Xbox and Halo when I was in college. Played a lot of video games. And one of the things that was exciting when you played games growing up was to find a cheat code. Because while the video game was operating kind of on a, a kind of a system and a universe of laws, if you had certain codes, you could break those laws, right? And so normally Mario could only jump so high. If he fell into lava, he died. But if you had a certain code in certain games, your player could be invincible. Your player could fly. You could do all kinds of incredible, fantastic things. You could skip levels if you wanted to. The only reason you could do that, though, is because the people who made the game, the designers, the creators of that game, built into that system these workarounds. What God is saying about his son here is that he's building into this world a workaround, the normal processes, to show that as creator, he can establish these laws of how babies enter this world, and if necessary, he can break these laws. This is important because what we see here God doing is bringing his son into the world in such a way that he's going to be unique. He's going to be different. He's not going to be a mixture of human and divine. He's not going to be God with a human suit. He is going to assume as God full humanity. Now this is important because if Jesus doesn't do this, if Jesus doesn't assume a full human nature, we as human beings have no hope. See, because our sin puts us in a position where we're not just people who do bad things. Sin is a series of desires we're enslaved to that causes us to worship ourselves rather than our creator. But the most deadly component to sin is not just these desires, it's the deception that these desires bring. You see, we're deceived in our sin into thinking that living for self, lying and stealing and pride and lust, we're deceived into thinking that doing those things is going to bring us happiness and fulfillment. But the reality is that they don't bring us fulfillment. They bring us death and destruction. Because while we sin against God, while we live our lives independent of Him, trying to serve ourselves, it puts us in a position to be worthy of God's wrath. See, because we are sinful, because we've broken God's laws, because we've disobeyed him, we deserve to be punished. This is critical because the position now God is in is because you and I are guilty. God cannot, listen carefully to me, he cannot just snap his fingers and forgive us. Wait a minute, Spencer, I thought, I thought God could do anything. You're saying God can't do something? Yes, I'm saying God can't violate his nature. 
You see, because God is holy and just, it is impossible, impossible for him to overlook our sin. He has to punish our guilt. He has to punish our sin. The only way we can get out of this mess, if somebody makes a payment on humanity's account. God cannot just snap his fingers and forgive you and me. We have a debt that humanity must pay. Imagine if after the service this morning, somebody came up to you in the hallway and said, hey, I've I've just inherited a lot of money. I would like to finish paying off your mortgage. How many of you would like to meet that person after church today? I mean, I would. They call you tomorrow and say, hey, I I still want to do this. Just tell me the amount that you owe on your house and I'll write a check. So sure enough, you give them the amount. They write out the check. They walk into the bank. But instead of giving it specifically to your mortgage, that person gives that amount to the bank and says, just put this in a a savings account. Now here's the question. If that person writes the check for the exact amount you need, does it do you any good if it's just sitting in a savings account? It only does you good if it's applied to your debt. It only does you good if it's applied to the account where your balance is still standing with that bank. Listen to me carefully. Salvation only works if somebody walks before God into his bank and pays on humanity's account. So what does God do? God sends his son into the world as God to assume humanity so he can pay on our account. The reason Jesus is in the manger that you're going to see all over this community is because he's coming strategically, divinely planned and organized so that he can walk in before the throne of God die on that cross, and write the check for the money that we could not pay for ourselves. This is what God does for you. This is what God does for me. Because when Jesus dies as fully God and fully man, perfect in every way, he's able to offer his life as an innocent substitute for you and for me. Did Jesus have to die? It's a great question that we should ask. Because what this passage teaches is absolutely yes. Because if Jesus doesn't die, doesn't matter how many good things are done in this world, doesn't matter how many soup kitchens you work or people you help across the street, unless somebody walks in before God and pays on your account and mine, we cannot be forgiven. But the Bible is equally clear that the only way this is applied to our account is by faith. Look at how this passage ends in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. You see, the way that Mary responds is actually a paradigm. It's a model for how we're called to respond. Because the way that Jesus and his work on the cross is applied to our account is by repenting of our sin and trusting Christ this faith that Mary exhibits both in her question and her response. I say, God, whatever you want to do, I'm surrendering. I'm laying my life down before you. This is the same call you and I have been given. 
as human beings. We do have a God who overcomes doubt and shame, but the God who overcomes sin only does so in our lives when we turn from that sin and place our faith and trust in Jesus. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in him, we're about to move into a time of response and we would love to talk with you, pray with you if you don't know Christ. But I also wanna say this to those of you that are believers. If you know Jesus, please understand that everyone in this room is trusting something. Some of us are trusting our jobs, our careers, our money, our 401k, our family, our friends, our stuff. The call as we look at Luke chapter one as we begin the series on Christmas is to remember we have a God who overcomes every single obstacle because you have that kind of God, you should trust him. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we're